Hello, and welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Daniel Kane. And we are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It is published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we are excited to have Ian Linquist joining us in the studio. Ian is the executive director of the Public Interest Fellowship and a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center here in D.C. For six years prior to his work in Washington, Ian served as a middle and high school teacher as well as an assistant headmaster with Great Hearts Academies in Phoenix, Arizona. For our fall 2019 issue, Ian wrote a terrific essay for us titled Classical Schools in Modern America, which explored the underappreciated resurgence of classical education in the U.S. over the last several decades. In his piece, Ian argued that the example of America's classical school movement can shed light on how we might best approach two daunting challenges that we face today as a country. First, replenishing America's dwindling human and social capital, and second, reinvigorating the associational and institutional life of the nation. Ian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. So Ian, just to start off here, we're going to talk a lot about the future of classical education, how the movement got started, all those things. But first, we want to kind of begin with an overview for listeners. What exactly do you mean when you say classical education? What, what does that mean? And how is that different from the traditional public and private school models that most Americans know today? Yeah, it's a great question. There are a couple of different versions, I think, of classical education. It's worth talking about at least two. One of them is a structure of education that's broken down into two parts. The two parts are first the trivium, which in Latin means something like three ways. And the trivium is made up of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And the second part of that education is called the quadrivium, or the four ways, which is made up of arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. Today, we think of these subjects that belong to the trivium and quadrivium as as quite different. But our ancestors in medieval times and, and the scholastics thought of the trivium as the group of arts that dealt with language or with words, and the quadrivium as the group of arts that dealt with number. The trivium especially has been readopted by the contemporary classical education movement. You can read about a lot of schools that have worked the trivium into their own curricula. There's a wonderful book by Sister Miriam Joseph called The Trivium, published by Paul Dry Press, that sort of lays the foundation for understanding how to incorporate this into schools. So that's the first type of curriculum that you see in classical education. I would emphasize a second type, which is loosely referred to as Socratic learning or Socratic seminars. And this often you see later on in one's education. So not at, say, the K-5 level or the 6 through 8 level, but rather at the 9 through 12 level, the high school level. And what you see is the kind of classroom where a teacher will come in, the students will have prepared 20, 25, maybe more, maybe less pages of reading. Of course, that's if, if it's the Iliad or something like this. Uh, you know, you, you, you might also just be reading a poem. It might be shorter, but the students will have prepared a text and will come into the room and, and the teacher, maybe one of the students, will ask an opening question. And then the students are off and running trying to answer that question by taking a look at the text. This is not the form of education that I grew up with. Even in the best classrooms that I had, where teachers were asking serious questions of students, it was not in a kind of hollow square table where students are speaking across the table to one another. It was much more the teacher facilitating conversation. It's very interesting to see what happens in these classrooms. I think that on the one hand, there's a kind of learning of the trivium, that is grammar, logic, and rhetoric. What you see students doing is practicing what it means to read, write, speak, and listen. 
all at once by grappling with the text in a kind of open conversation or unstructured, or rather, in a certain way, unstructured, but it's also structured since it, it opens with a question. But I think you also see a certain kind of ethical and civic education in the sense that students are having to exercise certain virtues in their conversation with one another. So today, it's common to hear cultural commentators talk about the loss of civility, right. toleration, neighborliness, hospitality, these sorts of virtues that are pre-political. But actually, you see high school students using those virtues all the time if they're disagreeing in a classroom, even if they're 14 or 15 years old. So underneath the structure of the trivium and the quadrivium, at least with a Socratic seminar classroom, you actually have a certain kind of civic education not based exclusively on knowledge, but rather on the kind of practice that they're up to together. So in the case of a Socratic dialectic that's going on at maybe ninth through 12th grade classrooms, I could see how it would be obviously different from the education that I think most Americans are familiar with. But if we're to take maybe the younger grades, kindergarten through eighth grade, say, and talk about how the trivium and the quadrivium get implemented there, what kind of differences would that emphasis manifest? How would the average person, what would they see as the differences if they were to walk into one of those classrooms? Yeah, that's a very good question. It's something that I'm less familiar with, but what I think I can say is that there is also a substantive difference in the sense that most of the classical schools I've come into contact with are comfortable with terms like virtue, truth, goodness, beauty. And these are not terms that they use just as a matter of course, but ones that they think students ought to be familiar with. And that goes all the way down to, say, first or second grade. So, for example, it may have changed, but the school system that I used to work for used to have nine virtues that were laid out as, as the ones that elementary school students would not only follow, but that they also would, would learn. And so different academic units would be broken into taking a look at those virtues and trying to teach students not only how to articulate something about them, but how to sort of ask about what they were and also how to, how to practice them in their own lives, but especially sort of in community in the classroom. So there may be other differences as well. I think there are almost certainly other differences as well when it comes to practice, but that would be a main difference that I would highlight just in terms of substance. Yeah. I just went to a public school growing up and I don't think, I mean, I'm sure I practiced things like critical reading and comprehending a text, but I didn't think I thought about a notion like justice or beauty until college, at least, and also until I got more involved with Catholicism or religion later in my life. I mean, so this is a case where you can plant the seeds early on and the kids, like at least they're familiar with these stories of history, they're familiar with these virtues, and then later on it even flowers into something where they can really grapple with these things in a really thoughtful way. That's a really good question, Dan. I guess I should note, because there's a part of your question that's very interesting to me, which is the relationship of traditional public schools to classical education. I should note as well that I'm a product of public schools. Sure. Uh, I had a great education growing up in central Connecticut in the public school district. My father was a 37-year public school teacher of English and eventually of, of computers. And I, I think that what we're talking about actually is not something that's sort of alternative or like sort of avant-garde. I mean, this is kind of, you know, as I'm, as I'm trying to describe what classical education is, I'm trying to describe how it's basically reading, writing, speaking, and listening well, <laughs> right? And to read, write, speak, and listen well, it means that you're going to have to not only identify what is, say, in a text, but also give an account of why people in the text have done what they've done, right? So there's a further discussion or maybe a separate discussion that we could have and, and that those who are interested in classical education and education policy can have about classical education within public schools. But I heard you that your question was about sort of laying the seeds for thinking about higher things, transcendent things within classical education. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I think to that, right. I mean, it bears stating that classical schools are comfortable with and tend to focus on, as I said before, terms like good, true, beautiful, virtue, justice, prudence, courage, moderation, other virtues. That is, they don't, I guess, shy away from things that elicit 
wonder. And even if there are questions about, well, what makes something good? Or is there such a thing as the good at all? The school is not going to shy away from, from using that kind of language. And I think there's a good account of why this is helpful for students. That is, I'm currently in the throes of fatherhood of young children. And one of the things that I, that I find is that... Uh, God bless you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, I'm going to need it. Uh, one of the things that I find is that they're very good at identifying things that are good. And they're very good at identifying when you've been truthful and when you've not been truthful, right? And they are drawn to certain things and they know they're drawn to certain things. And I, they identify something about those things that has drawn them to them. That is, it's, it's beautiful or it's... You know, some of my kids think that their younger siblings are cute. Um, <laughs> certainly, we wouldn't have a big C cute as uh, transcendental uh, at a class. Plato talked about cuteness. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. But that is these things as identifiers of one's relationship to other things in the world are, in a certain sense, natural. And so it makes sense to talk about these things and to consider whether there is something that is purely good, something that is purely true, something that is purely beautiful. So I think in that sense, there is a kind of laying of the groundwork for the mature consideration of the transcendent when one becomes an adult. Let me just also mention, going back to what we were speaking about with the trivium and the quadrivium, traditionally, the trivium and the quadrivium were seen as a kind of preparation for the study of philosophy. And philosophy was considered in medieval times to be the handmaiden of theology. That is, it was the sort of key that unlocked one's knowledge or one's, actually, not in the knower, but in the world, it was the key that unlocked sort of the secrets of the created world to someone who wanted to know about them. And that was a precursor to the study of theology, right? The study of, of God, of the logos or the logic of the word of God. And so in that sense as well, what you're saying, I think, Dan, is true, that the trivium and the quadrivium, a classical education, the way we've been talking about it, is a preparation for the consideration of the pure ideas, as it were. That's fascinating. Yeah, thanks again, Ian. Let's transition now a little bit to the history of kind of this movement. Was there a time in American history where this was more popular and then it went away? Or is this kind of, was this a new thing that emerged in, I think, the 80s, as you point out? Tell us a little bit about how this movement got started. Yeah, great question. The classical education movement, sort of similar to when we talk about, say, the conservative movement, is a thing that is self-conscious, right? It's self-consciously undertaken. And in a certain sense, because of that, it's not simply classical education. That is, I mean, there's, there's something... The first time that I ever taught in a school, we were actually in a movie theater that had been renovated to be a school. So I, I was teaching Shakespeare and Machiavelli and Jane Austen in a movie theater. Oh, that's awesome. Um, you know, but there, there's, something, there's something that is going to be out of place with students learning, say, Latin and Greek in a movie theater. Right? It's, just, it's not going to be by nature, as it were. It's going to be something that's self-consciously done. It's going to be a kind of movement. So having said that, I do think that it's fair to point out sometimes in the history of American education that more closely mirrored classical education. Already in the 17th century, it was common for the colonies to be bringing over textbooks from Britain. So by 1690, there are books coming off of the press in New England that in England were titled The English Protestant Tutor, but in America were titled The New England Primer. Um, you know, and this is now perhaps considered a matter of cultural appropriation, but at the time this led to uh, further literacy uh, in, in the colonies, which was good, good appropriate. Right, exactly. And so these books were focused on memorization, but they also contained certain fundamentals of catechetical teaching. So students, as they were learning to read, it was clear that they were learning to read in order to be able to access their own citizenship, as it were, in the church, according to a kind of Calvinist outlook. In the 19th century, there was a small textbook, a primer called the McGuffey Readers, which listeners actually may have heard of, which appeared in 1836. 
And those emphasized not religion, but rather something like civic belonging and morality. The McGuffey readers have actually sort of come back into play. You can find them being used among homeschoolers decently often, including in my own home. <laughs> and before that, the sort of precursor to the McGuffey readers was a book put together by Noah Webster called, I think it was Webster's Speller. There, there's a, there's a consideration for the different stages of learning and, and reading, similar to what you find in the Trivium. But there's not really any religion in that book. There is a teaching of, of reading, and then there's an emphasis on certain important dates in the history of America. So, for example, Columbus coming to the New World. Another example is the Battle of Yorktown in 1781. So there's a kind of emphasis on not religion, but on civic belonging, which I think still fits with the classical outlook or disposition, which is that there are things in the world to which the individual belongs. And there's a kind of shape that the individual who's being educated is going to have as a result of belonging to those things. You find something a little bit different during the progressive era. So in the late 19th century, early 20th century, when John Dewey comes on the scene, Dewey first begins his career at the University of Chicago and eventually moves over to Columbia, New York, at the beginning of the 20th century. And another interesting conversation that we could have is that Dewey is doing his work on sort of progressive education and emphasis on, on behavioral education at the same time that there's a whole group who is pushing a great books movement on Columbia's campus in the late 19 teens, 20s, 30s. That includes Alexander Michael John, Mortimer Adler, and Scott Buchanan, who eventually helps to found St. John's College, as well as Jacques Barzon, one of the Van Dorans, I forget which. But there's that movement going on at the same time that Dewey is pushing a very different understanding of education in his wide corpus of, of work. Dewey's view is that education is less about a body of knowledge to come to get to know, and it's more about self-realization. That is, the sort of civic structures or religious structures that help to come define the individual and that help one make sense of the experiences that one has, that that's got it sort of backward, that Dewey thinks that, in fact, experience is, is primary, and it's in the light of experience that one comes to understand religion or civic structures or something like that. So he ends up sort of flipping the sort of classical model, as it were. But American education up until then really had been focused on taking wonder in and then also conforming oneself, as it were, to the structures, both civic and religious, in the world around the individual, around the student. I didn't realize all that stuff with John Dewey as well. And would it be fair to say that Dewey's approach just simply won out in that battle of ideas among educators at a certain point? That's a very good question. I guess the answer that I have is, I don't know. But the question that I would ask in order to try to figure it out is a, is a relationship between Dewey's philosophy of education and reforms that, were, that the public school system was undergoing at that time. So there's also at that time a focus on access to public schools. There's a huge expansion of public schools and there's a huge expansion of the number of students and the percentage of students who are at the K-12 level who are coming into education. That's sort of the structural development at that time. But I guess if you look at the kind of education, as I think about the kind of education that is present in, say, I'm thinking about the kind of education that I grew up with, say, in, for me, it was the 1990s. I can't say that Dewey's form of education really won out in some sort of definitive way. That is, we even now think of, I mean, someone else who emphasizes behavior and experience a lot in her philosophy of education is Maria Montessori. But we still think of Montessori education as not the norm, 
And so even Montessori education right now is making, as, as far as I can tell, a kind of comeback. People are very interested in what she has to say. I don't think it's fair to say that that quite won out in traditional public schools. So whatever it was, it seems by the early 80s, at least a certain group of Americans were at a breaking point. They reached a breaking point with the mainstream education establishment. And they looked for alternatives. And in looking, they eventually started looking to the past. And they found this classical model. So could you tell us a little bit about the story about who the people were involved in that early process of rediscovering what some of their challenges were and how the movement grew into the massive nationwide movement it is now? Yeah, absolutely. I should emphasize that the story that I'm going to tell is, is a partial story. It's a story that illustrates the capacity that American society, I should say American civil society, has for renewal. But in no way does this cover all of the classical schools and school systems that are doing really great work. There are ones that I didn't include in the essay that I, that I won't speak about today that are doing absolutely fantastic work. There's a whole sort of field that could be opened up to try to account for all of the good work that's going on. But the story that I will tell will focus on three different types of schools, namely schools that came out of a certain stream of families and a certain group of, of communities that are focused on classical Christian education, a second group focused on classical Catholic education, and a third group that's focused on what you could call, and others have called, democratic classicism, which is focused more on belonging to sort of civic structures, becoming good citizens more in the, more according to the classical notion of a rational political animal. So it's the early 1980s, as you say, Daniel. In late 1981, there's a school in Moscow, Idaho that opens, Logos School, comprised of less than a dozen families, less than 20 students. They have rented facilities in a church that they're renting for, for their purposes. And one of the founders, Doug Wilson, about a decade later, writes a book called Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning, the title of which is based on an essay by the writer Dorothy Sayers, who wrote an essay called The Lost Tools of Learning that Wilson had learned a lot from and that had inspired him to help found this school. It's not too long after that, or it's around that time, that there is a ton of interest by other families and other communities who see the success of Logos School and who ask to come and visit the school. And so Logos holds a conference and brings together a number of families, a number of communities. This eventually turns into the Association of Classical Christian Schools, which is founded in 1994. So from a living room where there are less than a dozen families, maybe 20 students or so, we have a group that grows into a school that school eventually attracts interest, and that turns into a conference. And that conference, when it wants to be on a more permanent basis, makes use of a structure that's available in American society and in sort of the American constitutional structure, and they form an association of schools. And that association now educates about 40,000 students and has over 300 schools, which is pretty amazing growth in, what, less than 40 years. Sure, um, absolutely. Additionally, I, I think it's worth noting that ACCS also will credential teachers with their own teacher training that they come on site to do and will accredit schools. So there are certain functions that belong to that association or that membership level that schools can't make use of on their own. And we can return to, to these functions that exist at different, different levels, right? The family has a certain kind of function. The school has a certain kind of function. The associational level has a certain kind of function. And those functions all solve problems that exist at sort of the previous level, at the lower level of association. So this might be something worth coming back to. But what's, what's amazing about this story is that we see that structure of associational life, not only with this one community of classical Christian schools, but we also see it with a group of parochial schools, Catholic schools, which 
have a similar kind of structure. The Institute for Catholic Liberal Education begins its work in, in 1999 with the goal of reviving the Catholic K-12 education system, the parochial system. Now, the Institute for Catholic Liberal Education has a, has a different account of what classical education is from the classical Christian schools. That is, for ICLE, classical education is itself Catholic. It is a Catholic endeavor. And part of the reason that the Catholic schools in America have sort of gone wayward, gone off the true path, is that <laughs> they've turned away from this tradition. Part of their loss of vitality is the abandonment of the classical curriculum. And so we see here, too, that there's a, an associational level organization that comes to be in order to advise schools, to help to recruit teachers, to help to turn around curricula that have, in their view, sort of gone off, off the rails. One school could do that on its own, but it can't take on the work of trying to do that in a way that is contributing to cultural renewal sort of across the country, whereas that associational level does. So we have both the classical Christian and the Catholic classical sort of streams. Then there's also, over the last 30 years or so, we've seen that there's a third type of school that's come into existence, and that is charter schools. Charter schools were founded in the early 90s and today comprise more than 7,000 schools across the U.S., or about 5% of all schools, which in 30 years is a significant, <laughs> Again, significant growth. Not too bad. Yeah. The group that I'll focus on is the group actually that is in Phoenix, Arizona, Great Hearts Academies. That group also was founded by a group of families who were interested in forming a private school, but who thought that it would make sense to make use of this little mechanism that Arizona had just legislated for, that is charter schools. Now, charters, of course, have money that would normally go to the public schools go toward a private operator who has a vision of education, receives more autonomy for things like setting the curriculum, setting the school culture, hiring and firing teachers and school leaders. And because of that, they also have increased accountability. So they have to be approved by a state-level authorizer. But the first school there is founded, Tempe Prep Academy, with some help from a group called the Trinity Schools who had helped to provide some curriculum and had helped to provide some, even some, some leadership in the process. The Trinity Schools were a series of private schools, actually, that had been formed in the early 1980s, and they were able to help this charter school network get going. From there, Great Hearts Academies comes into existence because there's obviously interest in the Phoenix metro area for more than just this one school. And once Tempe Prep students demonstrate a high level of capability on the state standardized test, parents want to send their kids there. For a lot of parents, it's not simply about the good, the true, the beautiful, the transcendent. It's about wanting to get their kids a solid education sure. so that they can get into college and eventually be successful themselves. There is a dimension of this that is social or economic mobility that's really important. Long story short, Greyhearts now educates something like 20,000 students and has 30 or so schools and has recently opened something called the Institute for Classical Education, which is meant to be something like an internal think tank to the classical education movement that will help to advocate for policies that are helpful to the classical ed movement, as well as have an outlet for publishing some of the work of the faculty who are working in these schools, as well as doing some research on, for example, data on, on, on where students are going after they have this education. Just to draw back for a second, what catches my eye about this story is that classical education, number one, is a, is a flexible form of education. The fact that you have classical Christian schools saying, this is ours, and you have Catholic classical educators saying, this is ours, and you have democratic classes saying, and this is ours, and that they're in different types of schools means that this is a form of education that is not something that's owned by, by one group, but rather can be flexible depending on the group that you're working with. 
But I think also the development is notable. Again, that families give rise to schools, schools give rise as a community to an association. And then there are a number of parallel organizations that come to be to help the association as well. We can talk about those too. But that's that's more or less the, the history from the 1980s to today that I think is is most notable, again, with a lot of other players doing doing really great work. I was going to ask you about that next scene. You know, you have these families and communities that are starting these schools initially on their own, and then they develop into these associations, but, and then with some help, if you're a public charter school with some public funding, but you have the school, but then you need the instructional materials, you need the books, you need training for the teachers to teach in this new type of school. What kind of tests, you know, are you going to have that can also help kids get into colleges as well? How did the movement kind of develop all these things on its own without a lot of state support involved? That's a great question. I think that there are a lot of details to learn about in this space about just how to fund some of this, some of this work. For example, you know, presses and publishers, testing services, institutes of teacher training, right? All of these have a funding dimension or a financial dimension that, that deserves a, a decent amount of research. And that, will contri- that research would also contribute to knowing how to, how to put some of these institutions on a really stable footing. So that's a very good, very good question. But just to describe that terrain, Dan, I think that's right, that once you have, for example, the ACCS or you have the ICLE or you have, you know, Great Hearts or other chartered management organizations that are working on the form of education, when one is going back to a very old form of education, there, there might be a need to also dust off some books or sometimes just actually publish them again. <laughs> and then in addition to that, so that's sort of one group of things that, that can be done. But there's also a need to help not only, you know, there's some teachers and school leaders and sort of visionaries who are drawn to this form of education. But what about the parents who just want their kids to go to a school that is successful, that can teach their students to read, write well, to speak well? What about them? Are they really going to trust that going and reading Plato or Aristotle or what have you is going to help? I mean, there might be a need for there to be a volume or two about why classical education or a kind of overview of classical education, right? In addition to that, I think there's a need to go back and, and take a look at not only those who might write about, say, the philosophy of education on a very high level, but those who have looked at reforming the actual curriculum in schools before. So, for example, in the classical academic press, which is one organization that has been founded and sort of services many of these different associations, there are volumes on the history of education reformers, biographies about actual figures who have gone and tried to reform the curriculum. One of them that I mentioned in the essay, which is quite good and worth reading, is John Amos Cominius, a visionary reformer of schools. This is about someone living during the Thirty Years' War who is reforming the school systems that he's coming into contact with. And his biography is actually rather incredible. I mean, it's a, you know, he's, he's one of these people who, he's not a cat, so he's not died nine times, but it seems like, <laughs> you know, he's reinvented himself three or four times. But, you know, there, there's something to be gained in his biography and in his work in an age of education reform that we might not want to discover in other times, right? So it takes a publisher to, uh, <laughs> to actually put these things into the mainstream. Also, just to, to mention one other thing, there is a volume from Classical Academic Press just that's called An Introduction to Classical Education, which is a guide for parents. I was sort of surprised to see that the press had two different versions of this. I mean, there's a charter school edition, and then there's also an edition in Korean, right? So sort of following these groups can tell you, can let you know who is actually interested in sort of discovering these new ways that are coming out. There are also presses that are devoted to promulgating curriculum. So for example, Memoria Press, another group that's used often by homeschoolers, publishes materials that are essentially Christian classical education, 
that are used sometimes at the Highlands Latin School in Kentucky, but that would not have as wide purchase or wide availability without this press that's willing to send them to homeschoolers and others who want to make use of them. This is an amazing amount of availability for a rather new sort of movement. And then another group that you mentioned, Dan, the classic learning test, which is an innovation that is very recent within the last 10 years, maybe just over five years old right now. The classic learning test provides a college entrance exam that is, number one, benchmarked against the SAT and the ACT, but that is also a kind of competitor with them. And if you talk to the, the guys who work over there, they, they're very clear about the fact that this is not the classical learning test, that they think this is, they're making a claim that this is the best college entrance exam there is, right? That they, they want to stack it against the SAT and the ACT, that they're not backing down from the claim that this is a better test. This is, this is how it is. The goal is not to compete, but the goal is to compare, if that makes sense. I mean, they, they, okay. they think that schools should adopt this, that this is, a, this is a good thing. But I don't want to put words in their mouth and say that they're, they're certainly not trying to, to take down. Uh, right. their, their... Although it sounds like it probably would be better than the okay. All right. well, <laughs> A college professor would appreciate a student a lot who had taken a test like that. They would be prepared. That's a great point, right? So the, the, the content that is in the test, the CLT folks, as I understand it, don't think that that's arbitrary. They think that a student who's able to score well reading classic texts at a high level, talking about things like virtue or the transcendentals or something like this, are that that student is going to show more aptitude, is going to show more content knowledge, and is going to be better prepared for college. So that's, that's exactly right. But you can see the growth of this sector just over the last couple of years. So a few years ago in 2017, the CLT had 40 colleges that were signed on to recognize this test, and now they've got more than 150, just about two and a half years later. So you can see a significant interest by colleges. Now, what's incredible about this is that it's the CLT and the CLI, the the institute that that houses the CLT, has become, perhaps without expecting it, a kind of convening mechanism because there are so many colleges that are signed on to this, even if they have vastly different visions of what ultimately classical education belongs to or ultimately what it leads to, they are willing to get in the room and talk about their interest in the CLI and the CLT. And this means that there's a kind of community of people who are talking about the purpose and the modes of classical education together. And so in all of that, we see a kind of incredible example of the way in which associational life can sort of organically bubble up from a group of families getting together in a movie theater or a church and and building up this huge network spans an entire nation, printing presses, tests that are recognized by major colleges. But at the end of your essay, you emphasize another dimension of classical education. And you suggest that conservatives and traditionalists especially should be interested in the success of the classical education movement because, as you write, it is deeply concerned with sort of answering the question of social and human capital, of addressing that concern. And I want to spend some amount of time talking about that. But before I do, I was wondering if you could just give us an answer to the question, like, what is the social and human capital question that we're dealing with? That's a good question. I would recommend a number of books uh, about, <laughs> about that question, including a number that have recently been published, or actually one in particular that's recently been published, and some that are about to be published. So I think there are a number of ways of, of thinking about what this crisis actually is. But maybe a, a helpful way of putting it would just be on the social level, the social capital level, Everywhere one looks, one is struck by a kind of anxiety that the institutions to which people belong will not last more than 100 years. Or another way of putting that is, I mean, that's a long time. It's five generations, more than five generations. 
And then on the human capital level, maybe a way of talking about this would be to say that we seem generally worried that the institutions to which one belongs and the communities to which one belongs, and that includes schools and churches and all of the civil society, middling institutions that have traditionally comprised the American fabric, we're worried that those things aren't forming people any longer and are not, in a different idiom, adding any value. And perhaps they're doing worse than that. Perhaps they are sort of taking away value from, from people who are joining them. They're making people anxious. They might be sort of truncating the world of the people who belong to them in a significant way. I see this worry in many of the, the critiques of American society that are around today, some of which I have a lot of respect for. Just that engagement with American society and the institutions that have tried to become part and parcel of American society, for example, churches and some schools, they've actually sort of watered down their own content. They've watered down their own substance. And maybe worse than that, they, some of them have come to the point of, of possible destruction, or I should say self-destruction, which is probably even worse. That's how I think it would perhaps be best to talk about it, that social capital is best understood as sort of strength or lasting permanence of institutions. Institutions is, of course, a kind of conservative word. We could also just say, you know, different communities maybe would be, would be the other way of putting this. The, the, we like institutions. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's not a scare word. You don't even put quotes, scare quotes around that. Very good. Social capital is about the, the permanence of institutions and human capital is about the value or the enlarging of the horizon of the life of an individual human being. Does that get at your question, though? Yeah. You used the phrase, like, at home in the world yeah. earlier. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Because when you said that, that made me think of, of this question, the question of social and human capital. What is that sense of being at home in the world? Because that seems in a lot of ways to be what we're trying to get at when we talk about social and human capital. The social capital project is a pretty good example of drawing attention to this problem of anxiety, of loneliness, of desperation, the rise and deaths of despair, drug addiction. And so, you know, if classical education can maybe provide that sense of being at home in the world, then that's something that I think should be taken seriously. So I wonder if you could just speak a little directly to, to that. Yeah, that's a great question. I'll try to tie this back to policy, though I'm glad that we're veering into a realm that might be, <laughs> might be beyond it. My own sense is that being at home in the world, first of all, I might back up and say I'm not sure that it's ever possible for human beings fully to be <laughs> at home in the world. And that provides its own set of challenges, which is sometimes why our responses to being in the world look very strange or sometimes at cross purposes. One of the strange things about the social capital crisis and the human capital crisis that we seem to be talking about all over the place today is that it's, it's often about things about people, commitments, communities, institutions understood in a broad sense that are pre-political. That is, first of all, they're not political in a partisan way, but they also have to do with things that many people, I, I think of, say, my, my grandparents just sort of assumed would always be there and would always be healthy, things like, you know, churches. But I don't think, I guess in the American context, I don't think of this primarily as, when I think of churches in this sense, I don't think of the person who's kneeling in front of the altar, though that's very important too. I think of sort of in the fellowship hall over coffee after church, or I think of sitting down with friends who belong to the same neighborhood as you do. The sorts of things that are difficult to, to wrap into, say, like a comprehensive statistical study, I think institutions in that sense, in that broad sense, relieve many of the burdens that without them would just be too much for any single individual to bear. I think about certain commitments. I mean, 
I mean, we talk about, say, marriage, right? There's a, sometimes there's an assumption today that I mean, when people talk about marriage, they talk about getting to marriage and that being sort of the end of dating life. But in fact, what happens in marriage is it's actually a beginning. You make a promise and the promise is absurd. I mean, it's almost <laughs> impossible to fulfill. I mean, it's a huge promise that you're making for many to, to fulfill that promise, which is one of the highest aspirations that, that one can have. Very often, it's going to take time or the ability to go, say, have coffee with a friend and, and talk through problems one is having at home or to seek advice from fathers who have been through the elementary school years or the teenage years. And these are things that you can have a kind of institution that's set up to do this with funding and conferences and things like this. But I'm not sure that that makes one feel as at home in the world or makes one be as at home in the world as being able to see the same people every week after church with a kind of awareness that one has been through one of the, the, the primary duties and obligations of human life, and then be able to ask a question about fatherhood afterward. So I'm not sure whether I'm answering your question, but I am trying to get at the sort of pre-political things that just like a house, just like a home, is something that provides a kind of shelter, but also a kind of happiness or flourishing that is not partisan and political. I know we're running low on time, but I'll just ask a, a quick follow-up. Is that to say that there's something about the focus of a classical education on virtues, on the transcendentals, which allows the individual to more capably and ably make and live out the kind of moral commitments that lead to those institutions? Right. Thank you for reminding me. We're talking about education as well. Uh, I think that's true. One way of talking about classical education is to say that a primary goal of this form of education is to pass on the heritage and the tradition that has made it, made it its business to ask the question, how do I lead the best life? And what are the constituent parts of the best human life or a good human life? I think when one is in the habit of thought, habits of mind and character that have to do with considering one's experience in the light of those kinds of questions, and I'm not talking about a kind of dogmatic application of certain teachings to one's experience, but rather the habit of asking questions about how one might do better, how one might become closer to those around them, how one might understand what is in front of them better, how one might take wonder at what is in the world. I do think that that contributes to a certain sort of homingness or a certain being at home in the world. We mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you were previously a middle, middle school and high school teacher yourself at Great Hearts mm-hmm. in Phoenix. Could you just tell a little bit about your personal experience and how you actually saw on the ground level kids we can use abstract phrases like developing social capital or learning virtue, but how you actually saw that happen in individual kids' lives on a ground level? What was that like for you? That's a great question. Schools are like worlds. I mean, there's just so much activity going on in them. It's unbelievable. <laughs> so it's difficult to know at what level to sort of meet your question. Certainly, I sort of described before the kind of incredible ethical and civic activity that's going on in a Socratic seminar classroom. And maybe it would be best to just return to that. I mean, when you spend two hours, close to two hours, five days a week, trying to tackle, say, Plato, Aristotle, or really, I mean, you could say any text that's worth discussing for a couple of hours. It doesn't have to be a kind of antiquarian exercise, right? But when you spend time doing that, really getting after it together, you become like a team with other people. And that means that everyone who goes through the school has the experience of being a teammate, Everyone who goes through the school has the experience of disagreeing with teammates. Everyone who goes through the school figures out that they may have a role that they didn't expect in a seminar, and then they have to recalibrate in order to learn how to play that role, right? So I think that 
that's where I would see that the most. Sort of the coaching and part of the coaching would be from teacher to student, but part of the coaching also sometimes would be just student to student. When you start to see that after four years of that kind of, again, habit of thought and character is present, you can really see people shift their behavior and shift the kinds of virtues that they're bringing to bear in a given community or in a given activity over time. So I would emphasize that. But another conversation would emphasize coaching a soccer team, which I also happen to do. So. <laughs> you need to write another essay about soccer. I'll have you back on, like, which I would love because I have a huge soccer fan. But thanks so much, Ian. That was a great conversation. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, guys. If you'd like to read Ian's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast apps. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening. <laughs>